Hi, welcome back to another episode of EnviroMind. My name's Ananya Shreeder, and I'm your host. Last episode, I talked to Professor Robert Sapolsky from Stanford University about scapegoating and us versus them in both human and animal communities. This episode, I'll be focusing on linguistic anthropology and how language reveals how we can interact with humans who are different than us and what we can learn from cross-lingual communication. Here's Nagesh Ramamurthy, a resident of India and a world traveler who's also my uncle, who's going to share a story about a time he had to communicate with someone who didn't speak the same language. We find ways to get creative, whether that's through hand motions and signals, pointing at objects, or even melding our languages together to create a hybrid that each party can partially understand. So first, let's define linguistic anthropology. Linguistic anthropology examines various aspects of human communication and language, and how they fit into human and group interactions. A term that's developed under this umbrella of linguistic anthropology is covert linguistic racism. Here's a clip of John Baugh, a professor of psychology, anthropology, and linguistics at Washington University in St. Louis, talking about linguistic profiling. So linguistic profiling is, occurs when someone's denied goods or services, typically over the telephone, sight unseen, based on the sound of their voice. And um, the best illustration of this is in a movie, West Side Story. Lots of new housing with more space. Lots of door slamming in our face. I'll get a terrorist apartment. Better get rid of your accent. Yeah, right. Now, the question comes up, is that truly the case? If she gets rid of her accent, will she, in fact, get that terrorist apartment? And actually, when they say get rid of your accent, what they really mean is replace your accent, Okay. Because if you're getting rid of it, you're stopping talking, and that that makes no sense, okay? So it turns out I face this situation in a slightly different way. You're listening to my voice. Uh, I sound like a professional scholar. It's what I am, right? Um, Many people who would hear my voice over the telephone would not determine that I'm African-American. It's a theme that goes all the way back to colonialism. You had these cultures which were existing on their own with their own set of linguistic and communicative norms, 
And all of a sudden, this new group of people comes in with their own system of communication and insists that it's superior. Think religious conversation in schools in the original American colonies where indigenous people were forced to speak only English. Not only was a new language forced upon minority communities, but this new language was enforced as superior, more civilized, and more desirable, driving many native languages to extinction. This ideology that idealizes eloquent and traditional English has manifested itself in modern society. Professional organizations favor those who follow these norms, and even sometimes discriminate against those who speak in ways that have been stereotyped as unintelligent. African American vernacular English, for example. So language fundamentally assesses our ability to collaborate with others and can reveal strategies for breaking down these biases. So in order to understand that, I wanted to look into a case study where linguistic discrimination and profiling was absent. Here's Nagesh Ramamurthy, a resident of India and a world traveler who's also my uncle, who's going to share a story about a time he had to communicate with someone who didn't speak the same language. India is one of the most diverse populations in the world. There are thousands of dialects spoken there just in, within the country and within the different subpopulations that populate India. So I wanted to get some context from my interviewee of how that's influenced the way he views language in his everyday life. If a person can speak a little English, a little of his own mother tongue, which is a state language, and Hindi and Sanskrit, you will be able to manage uh, traveling the length and uh, breadth of this country mm-hmm. without much difficulty. And uh, well, after all that, uh, we also have several other uh, ways of giving uh, sign la- using sign languages to communicate with each other. Mm-hmm. And so that's within India, but you actually had an yeah. experience living with someone who didn't speak the same language as you um, yeah. outside of India. So can you uh, give a brief overview of what that experience was like? So I will just uh, narrate one instance uh, where I stayed for a couple of months in uh, a mountain uh, home in uh, a place called Sofia in Bulgaria. Mm-hmm. And, um, well, I used to stay in that house on the uh, topmost floor, which I, the house was a, a sort of a house with a basement and three floors. Mm-hmm. A typical uh, villa sort of uh, house and uh, on the hillock. And uh, there used to be the landlady, about 80 years old, who used to stay on the basement. And the other uh, three floors were given to people like me who come for either uh, leisure or for work. And uh, so, and I used to do the cooking for myself in the night. Mm -hmm. And the cooking had to be done in the basement where the landlady used to stay. And um, first few couple of few days I was trying to talk in English and trying to communicate with her and she used to talk to me in Bulgarian language. Mm-hmm. But after a few days, I suddenly realized what's the purpose of speaking to her in English because she doesn't understand. Yeah. So I said, let me talk my mother tongue. I started talking to her in Tamil. <laughs> and she used to talk and reply or uh, tell me things in Bulgarian language. Mm-hmm. 
so i uh, i used to call her party which means grandmother mm-hmm. so uh, even that party i had to explain to her we used to sit together during uh, the breakfast time or uh, any other time when i used to do the cooking in the night mm-hmm. to explain to her in sign language what each thing that i'm talking means so mm-hmm. i used to tell her phonetically party means grandmother and then used to explain with sign languages mm-hmm. okay and make some pictures for her on paper right. <laughs> telling that this is a child this is a mother this is a grandmother so uh, then uh, we used to have a lot of fun uh, doing that understanding each other mm-hmm. and uh, the relationship grew to such an extent that uh, on the maybe on the fifth or sixth day I mm-hmm. suddenly realized that when I said party from there, within two minutes she came all the way from the basement to the third floor <laughs> wow. with a tray with coffee and uh, like a pancake. Mm-hmm. So she just brought a pancake for me along with coffee, hot coffee, and I said, "Why did you bring it here?" She said, "You are not having much time, you know, to take bath and then come there." and you're such a great hurry to eat and then run away to work so i want to save you that time and she pro- the way brought it describes these complex sentences saying they said to each other it's almost as if when he's recalling the experience there wasn't a language barrier at all and uh, as days went by and uh, she used to sit and watch me uh, cooking and i used to explain to her how i'm uh, making rice and i'm uh, making some uh, gravy to eat along with that and uh, so she used to be watching me using all the ingredients and how i was cooking mm-hmm. and in addition to just understanding each other enough to be able to communicate they actually dove into each other's cultures wanting to understand uh, the food each other was making and i think that's really interesting because it demonstrates this desire to jump out of your comfort zone and understand people who are different than you so one day to my delight i was very very late uh, from the work and i was so tired that i went and uh, came back to the room i had bath and uh, i didn't want i just wanted to skip dinner and i just uh, went to bed mm-hmm. maybe after about 10 15 minutes i heard a sound on my door uh, uh knocking my door and i just got up and i saw this lady standing there hmm. and i asked her what 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 to what does she want she just took my hands and just she took me to, to the basement mm-hmm. i said i'm not feeling like uh, eating now i'm uh, very tired she said and i can't I, i don't have the time now and not the energy to cook then uh, she just uh, did not listen to anything what i told she took me there and to my delight i saw that whatever i normally used to cook and eat every day she had made everything and kept on the dining table mhm wow so uh, this is the type of uh, relationship that we developed yeah <laughs> maybe within a couple of months uh, staying together and uh, uh, with sign languages and so not only did they develop this incredibly close relationship but they also actually were able to break down each other's stereotypes and conceptions of what the other group would be based on what they looked like and 
My uncle's going to talk a little bit more about that now. The only two things that she could know about India was two, three things. Is one is she knew Gandhi. <laughs> so, Mahatma Gandhi, she used to say Gandhi. Yeah. Okay. It was Indira Gandhi. <laughs> right. Because the uh, women prime minister. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then she knew Taj Mahal. She said one day she would like to come and see the Taj Mahal. <laughs> wow. <laughs> In India. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And the other thing she uh, always used to love was the elephant god, mm. Ganesha. Mm-hmm. So these are things, that, these are the only the identities that she carried with uh, her about India. Yeah. So then I used to sit and also explain to her about these things. And uh, well, uh, fortunately, I used to always carry some pictures and uh, maybe one or two idols with me in my suitcase. So I had the opportunity to gift her an elephant god. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and mm-hmm. uh, uh, so I, uh, she said, you come and keep it where you think is right in my room. And I kept it and I showed her how I uh, use some incense sticks on that and uh, how I do some small prayers along with that. And uh, she started following that from the next day. The fact that this woman actually adopted cultural practices that were so different than the ones she was raised and socialized around really, to me, indicates that the language, crossing the language barrier, was really only a fraction of the puzzle. You know, at the heart of this interaction and relationship between these two incredibly different people was just an overall sense of compassion, interest, a lack of bias that allowed them to develop this relationship. And I think language was just one piece of that. But it's such an effective tool for helping us analyze the way that they interacted with each other. <laughs> so this is the type of... So I uh, realized that uh, all other things, you know, whether you know the language or you do not know that, you will be able to have a very uh, cordial relationship with a person if you can try to understand each other even by sign languages and a few words. See, this is, uh, I'm talking about 1989. Mm-hmm. The time was 1980, the year was 1989, when there were no mobile phones, there were no, uh, say, uh, media uh, laptops or anything. No and Google so I Translate. Don't have money. I have got a few, few photographs uh, taken on uh, film and developed later on. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, so I still uh, value a lot uh, when I uh, walk through memory lane when I see those pictures. Mm-hmm. Amazing that you guys were able yeah. to develop, not not only communicate at a surface level, but develop a very close relationship. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think, you know, not everybody would have the patience with someone who yeah. didn't speak their language, who didn't look like them to yeah. develop yeah. that kind of relationship. Not It, it takes like a, a certain... Yeah. Certain qualities yeah. to be able to do that. So. Exactly. And wherever you are good to people and you had a good, uh, you, uh, you respected their uh, language, their culture, and try to understand each other without even knowing each other's language. I had uh, developed a very good relationship with people who are always willing to come forward to help you and uh, in their country. And uh, they have really vivid memories. And uh, when you sit and brood on those things, you feel so happy about it. 
Mm-hmm. This story just touches me so much about my uncle and this Bulgarian woman developing this close relationship despite all their differences and the kindness and hospitality that she showed him. And I think it's so powerful because, you know, there's an absence of every single cruel human tendency that we're seeing in the news constantly. Racism and bigotry is all absent. Xenophobia, all absent. The anti-immigrant sentiment, colorism, all gone. There's this really genuine desire to treat the other as their equal, as their house guests, as even their, you could say, even their loved one. And this act interaction, I think, is something that we can really learn from. And analyzing the way language comes into it is definitely something we can learn from. And there's one linguistic anthropologist doing this work right now named Dr. Suzanne Wertheim. She conducts research on linguistic anthropology and has a consulting firm which provides training for companies and organizations to eliminate these biases. In addition to workplace consulting, uh, Dr. Wertheim does media consulting, and here I'm going to share a little excerpt about the work that she does in that field. We're studying the ways that people speak and use language and how it relates to the world around them. Our brains are incredible pattern recognition machines, and so we take it, it's how we learn language, period, like the grammar, it's how we learn so much of the world around us. Our brains are unbelievable, but what it means is that when we're fed bad data that's disproportionate, then we, it lodges in our brain. I would teach stuff that people would email me years later and be like, Professor Wertheim, I still remember. And stuff I thought was kind of obscure. They're like, it's so useful. It helped me at work. I was dealing with this. And so I started to get really frustrated at all this cool stuff that people were finding useful that was locked behind an academic background. So here's even more evidence from someone who has so much experience in academia, but also in the real world and applying what she learns from her research into real world situations, whether that's at a company or a law firm or the classroom, wherever it may be, saying that understanding language and the way we communicate with each other can enable us to cooperate in such effective ways to overcome barriers, physical, linguistic, whatever they may be, and treat each other with compassion. And so through these scholars and also by sharing my uncle's story about living with this Bulgarian woman and developing this relationship with her, by sharing that story with you all, I want the takeaway to be that we should be conscious in our language choice and stay curious about the world around us and understand that when we enrich ourselves in other people's cultures and languages, we enrich ourselves and our knowledge and develop these relationships with people that we may have looked past otherwise because they were too different than us or because it was too hard to communicate with them. But breaking down these preconceived notions and barriers really benefits us all. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. My name's Ananya Shreeder, and I'll see you next time.